Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. There you go. All it took was 15 minutes and we got it up and running. <laughs> anyway, joining me in McCourt on today's One Football Podcast is Helga Voltman. Hi. And Manu Dominguez. Hi, everyone. So you may notice something a bit different with the One Football Podcast uh, this season. Uh, there has been a split in the camp. Dan Burke has decided to replicate the Brexit approach and break away from the rest of us. He wants to concentrate on little old England and the Premier League. Uh, that podcast will be coming to you on Mondays. And on Thursdays, this is the one that you really want to tune in for because that's when the cool kids come out to pod. The hipster kids, the skinny jean kids, the flat white kids uh, will be taking more of a global approach to the show on Thursdays and not swallowing all that Premier League marketing hype. Uh, the address... The email address remains the same if you want to get in touch and send over any questions. That's podcast at warmfootball.com. Manu, question for you. Okay, I'm ready. Yeah. How is Leo Messi? How's he doing these days? Is he okay? Yeah, actually, I have to say that the first time that I saw Messi after all of this issue that he had uh, with the Burufax and so on was yesterday when Barcelona played against against Girona. I couldn't watch the, the match against Nastic and he scored twice. So, I mean, I guess that he still remembers how to play this, this game, no? But yeah, I cannot say that I saw him extremely happy. But, yeah, you know, like in football, these kind of feelings, they used to change quite fast. So, let us say when the season starts, Barcelona get three or four wins in a row. Why not? Why not? And maybe people, they forgot about what happened with Messi this summer. But at least, I mean, his qualities there. Uh, yesterday, I don't know if you had the opportunity to watch his first goal, but even he scored with his, with his right foot. And it was amazing. What a goal, what a guy. It was, I think somebody had shouted Golazzo before the goal had actually gone in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. I have to say, like one of my colleagues in one of my colleagues in in in, in the new room, he just wrote like in the in the push notification golazo because it was incredible. And even we had the option to use the 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 official goals from from the Barcelona Twitter account. So it was a good day for us. Um, not a good day though for uh, a president of Barcelona. Um, so it looks like he's going down. Or what? Where does that stand? Wow. I mean. Yeah, completely. I don't think so. It's a, a good day for the Barcelona board of directors. At least they must be nervous. And now it's is the is the is the situation. How to explain what is happening in Barcelona? Because everyone knows what happened on the pitch, but off the pitch, Barcelona is playing probably the most important match in the last five years. Uh, as you know, Barcelona is is a club that belongs to to its supporters, the supporters that they have a, a membership. Let us say that makes some difference between the current trending of clubs that we have like a single owner, for example, from Qatar, from Russia, from, from China. And this allows these members to have a decision-making power in the club. Let us say to have elections or to be informed once a year about the economic things. And this thing is happening now. I mean, there were like uh, some Barcelona supporter that after the defeat against Bayern Munich and after this messy issue, this messy gate, they decided to start an action, a movement, uh, to request an early call for elections because they are unhappy how the current board of directors they are working. The only thing is that they need in two weeks to collect it's around 15% of the numbers of all of the Barcelona's membership. So it's around 16k uh, signs. And the deadline is today. And as far as 
as far as we know, because we were checking like the media this morning. They are really close to this 16K. They are around 14K. Let us say that this action, it's called Motion de Censura, is the seventh time that it's happened in Barcelona history and never has been success. But it seems that it could be the first one that it happened because... As everyone knows, no Messi, no Piqué, and no Barcelona supporters are happy with Josep Maria Bartomeu. So it's possible that before the end of the of the year, we have a new elections, and all of the situations around Barcelona will change definitely. Definitely. On a practical level, Manu, I guess any changes will take time. I mean, the most important change is like actually, actually, we have uh, football players that they don't like their bosses. So they are playing for bosses that they don't have a good relationship with them. So if in December there is new elections and a new board of directors, directors are coming, at least the atmosphere in Barcelona is going to change. Of course, there's not going to be big changes on the pitch. Kuman is going to be the coach. Messi is going to be the number 10 and captain. But the atmosphere, and everyone knows that in football is really important, is going to change drastically. And we are going to talk about and amazing football players that they're maybe in a better environment and and this is going to affect to the to the results on the pitch i'm completely sure 100% i had planned to ask you had like it it's it sounded like things had, had calmed down and that kuman had got a handle on things but things could be ramping up pretty quickly if if they get all the signatures they need yeah 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 it's it's far away to calm let us say what happened the deadline is going to be today at 6 p.m they have to to present all of the firm all of the signs that they have have collected and as i um, as i said they are really close yesterday i have the opportunity to talk with a guy who is behind of this movement and he told me really we are really close uh, never uh, this motion de censura how it's called has been never so close to to be success so we have to be to be ready to read the news and um, maybe we can say that Barcelona is going to start a new completed era for the next months with elections already new candidates new names because already some of the candidates they have said that if they got if they got the presence of Barcelona they are not going to continue with with Ronald Koeman so pff, I mean so many change so many things they can change very quickly in Barcelona so sorry Koeman's going to be sacked I don't think so. That's what they say, for example, Victor Font, that if he became president, uh, his coach is going to be Xavi Hernández. But actually, I don't think so that if Kuman is doing a good job during this season, he's going to be sacked just because there is elections. But the intention of this candidate, for example, Victor Font, is to, to have Xavi as, as the next coach for the next season. Yeah. What? I mean, that didn't last very long for Kuman. No, 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 it seems that it could be, it could be short his, his story in Barcelona, but I mean, at the end, uh, football is football, and if he, he's doing a, a good season and the players are confident on, with him, maybe he has the option the option to, to continue this two season. I guess he has signed for two season and plus one, but the reality is the reality. The candidates, they want, they want a, a completely change, and they are not going to allow, probably, to have as a coach a guy who was... Uh, hired for the previous board of directors. So, as I told you, Barcelona is living a craziness uh, situation, and it's going to be really important what what happens today. Um, well, he might be sacked soon enough, but what do we know from his preseason of how he's going to set up with uh, Barcelona? Um, as far as we know, uh, they have already played two matches. They won both against, the, let us say, not really big teams, Nasty Tarragon and Girona, both from from Catalonia. <laughs> And the big change, the big change that we could see is the the formation. I mean, Barcelona used to play all of this, uh, as far as I know, from 2004 with Frank Rijkaard, this 4-3-3. 
with only one guy in, in the midfield. It used to be, let's say, Thiago Mota, then Edmilson, in the last days, uh, of course, Busquets. But now Kuman is starting to play with this 4-2-3-1 with two players in midfield. I mean, everyone believes that they are going to be Frank, Frankie de Jong alongside Pjanic or Sergio Busquets. The first match was Busquets and Alenia. The second one was Busquets and, and Frankie de Jong. And then three guys behind the striker. Of course, Messi in the number 10 position. And it's going to be really interesting to know if, if Kuman is going to play with wingers. First match, Dembele was in the start 11. In the second match, not. They were, they were Coutinho and Trincao, for example, who did an amazing match yesterday. And Griezmann played as a striker. We know that Kuman is demanding as a striker. Lautaro is really complicated that he arrives to, to come now but let us say what happens with Memphis Depay and what happens as well with Andrew Fati who, who did an amazing match with Spain and now is injured but is one of the best promises that Barcelona has Depay is done deal basically uh, the Olympic Lyon president he said that Barcelona doesn't have money Barcelona is waiting for Arturo Vidal and Luis Suarez the Parkers. it depends how much money they can get from, from them I don't think so too much but at the end we are talking about salaries around 15 millions so it could be that Barcelona can get 30, 35 millions 25 millions only because they don't have to pay the salary to Arturo Vidal and Luis Suarez and then it's necessary to, to negotiate a contract with 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 that with the player. So Kuman has asked for him. In my opinion, he's not a number nine. In my opinion, he's not a good sign for Barcelona because Barcelona has a lot of players who used to play in the same way as Memphis Depay, asking for the ball close to his feet, not looking for the space. But yeah, Kuman demanded his name and at the end he's the coach. So the, the drama continues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We will see. I mean Coutinho as well is kind of player not similar to the pie, but he used to ask for for the man the ball close to his feet as well. So, uh, so Barcelona, Barcelona didn't play in La Liga uh, last weekend. Neither did Real Madrid. Uh, Real Madrid having a very quiet postseason. Are they are they too busy laughing at Barcelona or what's going on over there? Yeah, Real Madrid. I mean, no rumors about possible sign, signing. Only the possibility that uh, Gareth Bale leaves leaves the club. Real Madrid played a, a friendly match two days ago against Getafe, but it. It was even not called as a friendly game. Zidane wanted that no, that no journalist in the in the stadium. He just wanted to mention that match as you know a training match. But they were like two different institutions, Real Madrid and Getafe. And yeah, one hour after the match, everyone knew that the Real Madrid had won 6-0 against Getafe with Benzema scoring four goals. So I think that Real Madrid is in a good shape as they show before the. The corona, the, after the corona, the corona stop, the corona breaking, and and I don't know if if Zidane is gonna bring us some new ideas, some new concepts. In my opinion, they have like some amazing young players that they have a lot to show, like Vinicius Junior, Rodrigo, again Marco Asensio. So in my opinion, they are the, the the top one if we are talking about who is the favorite to to win this La Liga trophy. But that's the dilemma for Zidane this season, isn't it? Whether to go with the older heads or to give youth more of a chance, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good point. Because even last year, he started already to do some changes. The most important matches, Marcelo was not playing, even if he was really important in the squad and playing a lot of minutes with Zinedine Zidane. With Modric, happened actually, actually the same, with Fede Valverde having a lot of minutes as well during the season. And in my opinion, this year, one of the big 
Topis is going to be Eden Hazard because he has to show that he's the, the, the best player that Real Madrid that Real Madrid had. I mean, Real Madrid paid for him more than 100 million last summer. And actually, I really want to see what Zinedine Zidane, uh, what's the Zinedine Zidane behavior with with Vinicius Junior because I'm a really fan of Vinicius Junior. In my opinion, he's a top 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 player. But uh, the last experience is that he didn't play against Manchester City. He didn't play a minute, even if he was doing a good job in this La Liga matches after the breaking. And I'm not really sure if the relationship between Vinicius and Zidane is, is is a good one, or I don't know what is happening there. But I'm really wondering what is going to happen with the Brazilian star. Speaking of good relationships, uh, Gareth Bale, it, it seems to be on his on his way out with Delhi Delhi Ali coming in the other way. That must get Real Madrid fans very excited. <laughs> actually, I'm not, I'm not really sure. And actually, I'm not really believe that Dele Alli is going to be in the deal. I mean, I don't see Dele Alli having, cha- I mean, having chances. He's a good player. And of course, he's going to have chances if he decides to, to, if Real Madrid decides to bring him, uh, bring him there. But actually, we are talking about so many players in that position. With, uh, we mentioned already Vinicius, but we mentioned already Marco Asensio. But we could say as well Isco or, or even Odegaard, you know. So I'm not really sure if if uh, Dele Alli is going to be in, in the deal but we, it seems that it's going to happen is that Gareth Bale is going to leave Real Madrid so we were, we, we are going to have to forget this uh, Wales goal Real Madrid for, for a while eh? I didn't realise he's on 600,000 a week no I actually had no idea but I could expect something like that eh? that's pretty amazing <laughs> uh, you mentioned Odegaard are we going to see much of him this season in a Madrid shirt I hope I guess I mean he was we had already a lot of podcasts, uh, podcasts last year and we talked about Odegaard as being probably the most exciting player on, at the beginning of the season. He, he's incredible. He has everything and even he's, you know, he's young, he's fresh. So he can bring to Real Madrid a lot of a lot of energy in the midfield. And in these big teams, it's really necessary, these kind of, of players who are able to, to attack and to defend, to do everything. And I don't know why, but... He had the option to be a second year in San Sebastián, to play uh, the Europa League there with, with Real Sociedad. And Zidane say no. Zidane say no because he, he wanted him in the squad. So, yeah, in my opinion, I guess that if he decides to do that, it's because he's going he, he's gonna to bring him confidence and he's going to give him minutes yeah, during the season. Okay, anything to look out for then this weekend? Actually, I don't think so. Real Madrid is... Uh, I'm not sure Real Madrid is playing this weekend too. Uh, top quality analysis here from the One Football Club. Let me check, but I don't think so. Real Madrid <laughs> must play. No, actually, actually, you are right. I have to say you are right. And they play against Real Sociedad on Sunday because on. you know, like Real Madrid was not in Lisbon uh, playing the the top eight round, so they are play, they are starting one one week before in Barcelona, and they play against Real Sociedad. Actually, it's it's a it's a good match for for Martin Odegaard. He played there the the, the last season, and and let's say it's gonna be it's gonna be nice to see this first uh, start eleven from from Zinedine Zidane, especially because Eden Hazard didn't train during the last week. So we will see which which players are gonna be are gonna be picked for for the French trainer, the French coach. Elsewhere, Helga, the Bundesliga is back. Uh, Bayern, we know already, are going to be champions, so there's no need to even talk about that. Uh, but is there any sense with, with Haaland and Sancho getting together for a full season that Dortmund can, at the very, very least, even run them close? Well, they did so kind of last year already. They bottled it more or less when they when they faced off against each other and then they were just uh, too far behind and then, yeah. 
couldn't couldn't keep up anymore. Um, but I think it's very going to be very interesting to see a Dortmund team having Haaland and, and Sancho for a full season together, which is, yeah, like last year it was coming in in the winter. Uh, I think it's also like with uh, Jude Bellingham, they're going to have like another option in midfield who was very promising in preseason and in the cup. They um, have a very young team, which might be the problem because uh, getting the consistency going like, to, to play a full season on the level that Bayern does. Because, yeah, Bayern has just, they, they get above 80 points each year, which is the record that Dortmund had when they had Klopp. They, they managed for the first time in their history to get more than 80 points. So for them, it's going to be really, really tough. They have to hope that Bayern is maybe having a, a weak period at some point, like they did the last years, and then they have to capitalize on them. Um, the only hope there is that uh, maybe Bayern right now they they have a really good starting level, like a really good like uh, like the first 13, 14 players are really really like world class and, and and better than the rest of the Bundesliga basically. But they're lacking backups at the moment. And last season they they kind of got lucky that they they first played the Bundesliga. Then they played the cup final and then they played the Champions League tournament so they could focus on each competition that they won't have this year. So that might be a problem for them if they don't buy the backups that they're needing. Like they need a right back, they need central midfielders, especially if Thiago should leave to, to um, Liverpool or, or Manchester United. And yeah, that could be like the only, only point where I see Dortmund maybe capitalizing. They also managed to avoid any really long-term major injuries last season too, which was a bit of luck on their side. At least on, on, a, on a big scale, yeah. They had Zule who had a torn ACL, but Boateng stepped up, which was a little unexpected because they already told him to leave. <laughs> um, but yeah, like they, they, they managed at least like to have the injuries kind of like if that makes sense at, at the right time, like the timing was okay for them so that they could always replace them and just mix up the team. They had like a, a time where they were really low on, on subs, but but still still managed all right. Sorry, my microphone was muted there for a second. I don't know. <laughs> the joys of the joys of podcasting from home. Uh, so I, I mean, they'll they'll also have Sunny this season. Uh, yes. Which is yeah, a little but, bit depressing for the rest of us. <laughs> well, they lost Perisic. No, like it is like they, they like as I said, like like the first 13, 14 players of them, they're really, really outstanding and, and better than like the rest of the Bundesliga. Like, of course, Dortmund has some players that can they can match, like Sancho, for example. But yeah, um, Bayern has done like like the the players they got in really interesting. Zane and um, and Anzu from 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 uh, PSG, like a young young center back um but yeah they they need some backups really and flick has asked, has been asking for it uh, can we logically expect a, a similar season from leipzig as we had last year or or how do we think nagelsmann will cope with losing uh, a couple of top strikers yeah he, he, didn't, he didn't just only use timo Werner, which like who has not been replaced completely yet but also Patrick Schick, who was, I think he scored nine or ten goals in the, in the Bundesliga. He was like a really nice addition to the team as well, because, yeah, he, he's good as, at headers. And, and that's something that Werner obviously is lacking, for example, like they could play together well. Um, 
And they only got in uh, Heechan uh, Wang from uh, Red Bull Salzburg as a big surprise. Hmm. One wonder how they scouted him. Uh, that's yeah, that's, a, that's an odd one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, they they also have players like like Danny Olmo, who they got in in, in the winter, who can now probably take a, a more prominent role, get some more like responsibility and and uh, space as well on the pitch. So I think he is going to do way better and I think they are still going to be challenging for Champions League definitely but maybe dropping a place like from third to fourth but yeah also Leverkusen has lost their, their key player in Kai Havertz so they should still stay atop of, of them I think um, but Gladbach are Gladbach going to be the ones that, that take Leipzig's place because they were only what they were only one point behind Leipzig last season they were they, they were they were fourth and um, they were uh, they managed to to keep their team together, which is kind of kind of surprising because normally you have a team that uh, is not uh, normally challenging for the Champions League spot. If they manage to get there, normally everybody like all the top teams are coming and, and buying their top players. But this time. Like for two reasons, like Gladbach has gotten some money in, in the recent years, so they they didn't need to sell anybody. And also, I think the the Corona transfer market played into their hands a little bit in that in that way that the top teams did not have the money to just splurge on on a bunch of players, but they were more focused on on which players they wanted to get into that guaranteed them success. So they they kept their team, but they they got some interesting signings in Hannes Wolf, who was. Basically injured all, all year, uh, all last season. Um, he was at Leipzig, but he knows Marco Rose, the Gladbach coach from Salzburg. So they, they kind of they have a history together. They, they know um, what they can get from each other. And also Valentino Lazaro, who's very versatile. He's been great at uh, Hertha, then had a difficult season last year. But they cost them so far on, on loan, like they cost them three million, I think, together combined. So they got players in that have the, like high quality. Lazaro can play basically every position that is not centre back or goalkeeper. So like he's like he's played right back for Hertha. He's he can play as a winger, like left right winger offensively. Uh, maybe even as a striker if, if he needs to, because he's, he's just very quick and, and good with the ball. Like, but definitely on the wings, he can cover all positions. Would you be worried that their heads are turned by the Champions League? I don't think their heads will be turned for too long. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, they, they start in the, in the fourth pot, so they're going to get really tough opponents. And um, Yes, it could be, but they, they really have a lot of, like a very, like, very wide, like, how would, how would you say, like a wide squad, like, like, a, um, like a lot of players that are on an equal level. Mm-hmm. They, can, they can change a lot of, uh, they can sub them like a lot of players in. They, they have... On the bench, they, they could have like Hermann, Stinde, the Hofmann, they have Lazaro who can play everywhere. Hannes Wolf is not guaranteed a spot. So they, they have so many good players. And then they have Turam and Plea and, and Bolo obviously are on top. Like they are going to start. They have a really good team and also like a lot of possible backups and, and subs. They, I think they're going to do well. There'll be a tough challenge, although perhaps it might be a bit too optimistic to think that they will be the second German Champions League winners in a row. <laughs> 
<laughs> might be a little bit much. A wee bit much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, they're one to watch out for. Um, obviously, we want to see how Leipzig are going to do without uh, Timo Werner and how, you know, with Jude Bellingham and uh, Haaland and Sancho all together. That's always going to be interesting. Um, any other teams you would point to as, as ones to look out for this season? For really nice football, I think that is about it. The problem is, like, Leverkusen is in a weird spot right now, for example. Like, they were fifth last year. They barely missed out on, on the Champions League. And they now lost uh, Kevin Folland, who was their uh, number one striker, kind of. And they've lost Kai Havertz, who was the number 10. But when Folland was, in, uh, Folland was injured, he replaced him in, like, up front as well. But I think together they, they had, like, 60 score points or, like, goals and assists combined. And, and these are gone now. So far, they have brought in Patrick Schick, from, um, like, who was playing at, at Leipzig last season. Now they got him in. So he can replace Folland, but they still haven't gotten a replacement for Havertz, which I don't think they're able to get. And they already said they're not going to reinvest all of that money completely. So it's, it's going to be really weird to see how they are coping, because they do have young and interesting players in Paulinho and Moussa Diaby. In Florian Wirtz, who's the youngest uh, goal scorer of the Bundesliga history, he's kind of like a, like the next Havertz already. He's seventeen, um, more of a winger, and, and like he's smaller as well. Um, but you know, in the sense of like he's seventeen and already proven himself to be able to play on, on a Bundesliga level. So that's really interesting to see how they are going to replace Havertz and if they can manage to keep that that level that they had last season. And always interesting is going to be Hertha. As we've talked in many podcasts before as well, they, they've been uh, spending money this this summer as well. They brought in John Cordoba from uh, Cologne recently. Um, they got in Schwolo from Freiburg, a really good goalkeeper. Uh, Toussaint from Lyon, who was bought in this winter but was on loan for another half year is now at Hertha. They're still looking for a winger and a center midfielder. Last Winter they got Piontek in, they got Cunha. They have a lot of a lot of big signings, and still they were struggling in, in the preseason and already got kicked out of the cup by a second league uh, team. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see how they cope. I, th- I personally think they're going to need another season to kind of they get they get a, a starting eleven going, get get like the team to actually work well together. And they also need uh, a new hierarchy because they had Ibizovic and Kalu going who were above 30. They had Shelbred going as well who was in, in midfield, one of the one of the more experienced players. I think they, they need to find kind of like a new hierarchy, a new um, yeah, like a, a new system that works for them, how, how to arrange the players that they can get the best out of them. But uh, definitely interesting to see how they're going to do this this year. Um, would you nominate them as the ones who've done the best business in the transfer market so far? No, <laughs> okay. they, they've done they've done the most business, and yeah, like, that's what I, that's what fans want to see. Just buy. <laughs> just buy. It doesn't matter who. Just buy. Yeah, like it's as I said, like they, they're still like with losing all these experienced players. It's I don't know if that characterizes the best business. Like they they definitely have gotten in some interesting players, and it's gonna be 
in the long run, I think it's going to be a good team, and I think they're on the right track in the, in the sense of like what they're like the players that they are buying. But I think it needs some time. Uh, best business for me is uh, Gladbach, as we talked about before, keeping their team, all the successful players. They only lost Rafael and Strobel, who were not um, starting eleven players, and they brought in Lazaro and, and Hannes Wolf, who are younger and like a very quick players as well that can that can bring the team forward. And uh, for best business, at least for what like for for the um, money that they are having is to me is Union Berlin because they brought in Max Kruse, who oh everybody who, likes Max yes who everybody knows as well and he if he can get to the level that he was playing uh, before the Corona break or like last year with Werder Bremen still that is a quality of player that they that I didn't think they could get. Like when I first heard the rumor that, that he might go there, I, I did not think it was going to happen. But yeah, it's a really good buy for them. Uh, they got Robin Knoche from VfL Wolfsburg on a free transfer. And he was, until the 25th match day last season, he was playing very regularly for Wolfsburg, who has managed to qualify for uh, the Europa League. And only when it was clear that he wasn't going to extend his contract, he was dropped, basically. So... They managed to get a uh, Europa League defender for free. Uh, and then they had some nice additions, just also like they didn't spend any money. They got Nico Schlotterbeck in from Freiburg, who's an uh, under 21 German national player for uh, yeah, big center back. And they got a left back in Nico Gieselmann from Fortuna Düsseldorf, who was playing um, for, for them on a, on a very regular basis, like starting 11, also on a free transfer. So they, they managed to, to strengthen the squad on basically no money and uh, only lost Sebastian Andersson in, as, as their best striker, but they got a good fee of 5 million for him so they can now look out for a suitable replacement. Probably Kutucu from Schalke as a young striker uh, who can who's going to be cheap so they, they still have the money to, to get a more experienced player in and actually replace Anderson if they can keep Cruza away from the the, the poker tables and keep, <laughs> and keep his head you know keep him focused that's a super signing yeah it's, it's really interesting because the, the question remains is that Werder Bremen was also after him and they were like Frank Baumann was hinting at like oh yeah we, we couldn't align in what we're interested in from priorities, which made it sound really like like Kruse just chose Berlin because it's nice and you know nice to live, poker and maybe a little, little nightlife. He said definitely not the reason, and was really angry at Frank Baumann for that. Um, but yeah, we'll also see like he's thirty two. Um, he was never the most dynamic player, so they, they he was more like you know like his creativity, his mm. his uh, shooting, his his scoring ability. His uh, passing that was always his strength. So I think he should be having like at least like another good year or two in him. But yeah, like his focus is, is the most important question. Uh, yeah, just and look, Max, if you're listening, just don't leave any more money in the back of the taxi. <laughs> just don't do it. How can you lose sixty thousand or whatever it was like that? Well, if you're if you're earning six million a year, you know, like it's like us, like one of us losing five hundred bucks, which is very very you know like. Pissing me off, but it could happen. I'd I'd be pretty pissed if I lost uh, if I lost six hundred bucks in the back of a taxi. Uh, <laughs> we, we've sort of mentioned Schalke a little bit in passing, and my bold prediction for the season is that they're going down. Helga could be. Maybe they, they 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 don't have a terrible team. They have an unbalanced team, like a lot of midfielders, 
loads of strikers, but not really like they have no right back, so Sebastian Rudi has to play that. Like they have a really weird team, but they still have quality players. Like they got Paciencia in now. They've got uh, they they lost McKenny, but they still have Suarez. They have Omar Mascarell. They they have Harry. There there's still quality there. Like, but it's but Schalke, it, Helga. Yeah, it's Schalke. <laughs> yeah, and it's also like the like the coach. There there can't be much trust with him. Like he. They, they didn't win any of the last 16 Bundesliga games. Uh, this is what I'm basing it on. Yeah, and they also they start against Bayern, so it's going to be 17, so they basically will not have won a game in, in a full uh, like half of the season. Um, and also, like the start to the season is really tough. Like I've, I've got Wagner. Like we always do these predictions, like oh, which is the, the first coach who sadly gets sacked. I have Wagner there um, because they start the first three away games. They start against Bayern, Leipzig, and Dortmund. Oof. So that is really, really tough. They have manageable home games against Bremen, Stuttgart, and I think Union Berlin. Uh, I think I'm mixing up the order there, but like you know, you, you get what I mean. Like they, they're all teams that could you know be struggling with uh, like relegation, but they're really under pressure at home. And after this run of not winning any games, it's it's really going to be tough for them because they need six points out of the three games at least to just you know not be very far behind after six match days. Especially because they still later on have um, Gladbach. Leverkusen and Wolfsburg in a row. That's tricky. That's like in the first uh, 10 games, they are playing six out of the seven teams that qualified for Europe last last year. It's really tough. So after 10 games, they could be at like, even if it goes well, they could be at like seven to nine points. Um, anything to mention about the, the new teams coming up, which is uh, Armenia, Bielefeld and Stuttgart? Stuttgart is back, yes. Yeah, with Sven Misselland uh, in charge, I believe. Misselland, yeah, yeah. He's he's weirdly buying only defenders. That's his new thing. Sneak. That's that's his new thing. Yeah. Sven knows. <laughs> yeah, like they, they they really made a weird transfer business because because they had Kobe on loan, so they signed up for four million, but they only had like a like a budget of of five million for for the summer. He said. And then they got Waldemar Anton in for four million as well. They now got rid of Mafio, so they kind of balanced balanced the books, and they got so they have like a goalkeeper, Waldemar Anton, a centre back from Hanover out of the second league. They've got Pascal Stenzel from Freiburg as a right back for like one million. I think he was already on loan there before as well. They loaned Mavropanos from Arsenal, a centre back, and they got Vataru Endu as a defensive midfielder. So that's their their transfer market so far. Like, and they're really thin. In, in attack, like they they only have Eric Tommy and Daniel Didavi in the offensive positions that have played or have proven that they can play in the in the Bundesliga. But Didavi is injury prone. Uh, Tommy is uh, not the difference maker that you can get. Like he's he's decent, but he's not the difference maker. Then they have. Uh, Nicola Gonzalez, who's injured until October, and he was their best striker with 14 goals, but he wants to leave, and he said so, but he probably can't now because he's injured. So I think they were banking on him leaving for a very good fee so they could get um, more players in for, for the attack. 
But now they're left with uh, Silas Roman Tuka, who's 20 years old. He's he's been good in the in the second league for them, but yeah, he's, he's not proven for the first league. And then they're left with uh, Sasha Kalaitic, who was injured for all of last season, basically. Uh, and they've got Amadi Al Gariu. They, they really thin on like in the, in the striking department, so that's why I, I think um, uh, they need to be worried to to stay in because that. Already in the second league, they were relying very much on an individual class to actually win their games. So now in the department, they are outclassed. So that makes it really difficult. And their coach, um, Pellegrino Matarazzo, he has no experience when it comes to the first league either. And he's a very young coach. So that, it's, it's, a, it's a weird mix that could either either land them in, um, in the Europa League or that's going to get them relegated. <laughs> you know, like, it's, 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 I don't know. Like They have one of the youngest teams of the league. It's, it's really, really difficult to see. But for me, my prediction is they're going down just because they're lacking attackers. Okay, well, you, you made one prediction. Let's make more foolish predictions that will come back to haunt you by the end <laughs> of the season. Your top four in order? Uh, that will be Bayern, Dortmund, Gladbach, Leipzig. And your bottom three? Uh, I think Stuttgart, Cologne, and then uh, I think Bielefeld can somehow save it, even though they don't have the best... Like they didn't have, like they they do still have a second league team, but they do have. A, so just shortly to bring it in, like you have teams normally from the second league that come up and they have the best defense, like Union Berlin had last season. They do fairly well. If they have the best attack, they normally like they rely on their attack. They normally don't do as well because their attack is not as you know as good in the first league anymore, and then they concede goals. Union, uh, Amina Bielefeld has uh, best attack and best defense of last season in the second league. So I think they could do fairly well and they have a nice way of playing. They just, you know, like they involve the goalkeeper a lot, kind of like in the Manuel Neuer way on a different level. Um, so I think they could be a really interesting team, especially because uh, the, the coach, Neuhaus, he's also realized they can't just rely on attacking all the time. He's he started in the preseason to, to involve a back five, so they to able to switch from 4-3-3 to a back five. I think it could be really interesting so I, I put them as the relegation spot uh, playoff spot where they probably going to stay in because that's what's happening if you play relegation playoffs as the first league team player of the season player of the season like can I say anything else than Robert Lewandowski no I, I don't think so contractually obliged to say <laughs> uh, flop of the season are we going for player uh, yeah Okay, then like, there hasn't been that much transfer business, so I, I need to go a little uh, geekier here. Like I think Andre Duda. That is geeky. <laughs> he's, he's, he's cost seven million. You know, Cologne has given away uh, John Cordoba, the best striker, brought in uh, Andre Duda um, for uh, the number ten position because they lost uh, Ut to Schalke, like he was only on loan, and it cost them seven million and. When Hertha bought him three years ago, uh, he only cost them four. And since then, he's only scored 13 goals in 71 games. So he's not been, he's not been great for them. So uh, he's had one good season and the rest of it was very lackluster. So I don't know why you suddenly pay seven instead of four million. And I don't think he's going to be the, the player they need to, to stay in. That's why I also predict them as a possible relegation team. Okay. Uh, now as part of the new approach with this podcast 
podcast each week we're going to talk to a friend of the pod about how uh about, well about their club how they picked the team the history the greatest moments the greatest players of course and look at some of the issues around the club today we start this week with inter milan and an old friend of the pod nima tavoli nima is the founder and brains behind separate inter uh, and one third of the italian football podcast uh, so i started by asking him why inter it's a funny story that um i'm i'm, I'm as old as uh, born in 1981 so i'm, I'm i yeah i know it was before the internet and and iPhones and Android phones. It's it's. I know it's it's that it was the dark ages. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I mean, it was it was 1988-89, and uh, my aunt was married to a German man uh, who's no longer with us, and he um, he they they had a satellite dish, and he used to watch German TV, and they showed uh, the Serie A on the uh, on on on. I, th- I can't remember which German channel it was, but. He was looking at it because they had Andy Bremer and Lothar Matthäus in, at Inter. Mm-hmm. And it was a championship. It was a game that Inter won the league at, at home at San Siro uh, against Napoli. Only goal scored by Lothar Matthäus. And the San Siro was packed, of course, as it was uh, back then. And it, the, the atmosphere and, and the characters of that Inter team. And Trapattoni's Inter de Record, uh, 1980-89 season. Um, Zenga and Gol, Ricardo Ferri, Bergomi, Nicola Berti. Uh, it was, you know, they, they were such characters, um, and you know, so so the, the, that game kind of that game kind of won me over and 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 ruined my life, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope I hope the football was definitely better than Trapattoni's Irish football. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, Inter were, were barely conceded a goal, uh, and he counted on the genius and brilliance of Mateus going forward and, and Serena. So, uh, yeah, no, no, it was it was good. I mean, it was it was. I mean, they call it the Inter Day record because Inter were broke every record. They they barely conceded a goal. They barely lost a game, and they beat every single record uh, that was available back then. I mean, it was an eighteen teams uh, league, and it was two points per win. So that record will probably stay forever. Okay, well, for those for those who don't know too much about the the Nerazzurri, maybe you could just give us a, a brief history lesson on the club. Well, I mean, the reason why they're called Inter, Internazionale Milano, is because, I mean, when they were founded on the 9th of March 1908, the club, uh, the, these play, the, these the, the, a group of players that that used to play at AC Milano, they were all <clears throat> all part of AC Milan. And they had a friend who was Swiss who, wa- who they wanted to be able to play, and he wasn't allowed to because he was not, he was an Italian. And so they, they, they didn't like this at all. So they, what they did was they, uh, they met at a restaurant called L'Orologio, uh, or, clock, or The Clock, um, on the 9th of March, 1908, and they declared Inter, saying that, you know, naming the club, uh, we call the club Internazionale because we are brothers of the world. Uh, and they um, they chose the colors from the night, you know, the the black and blue of the night and the gold of the stars, the starlight. So they they were they were artists and poets, as you can hear from the offset. It was very poetic and and very um, uh, you know like that. So it was um, so that's how, that's how Inter started. And then I'm guessing that the the glory years were then the the sixties and seventies, right? Well, I mean, it's it's difficult to say because um, you know we're talking during a period when Giuseppe Meazza, who who won two World Cups for Italy in the thirties, uh, sorry, in the twenties, um, he uh, he, um, you know, it's it's kind of uh, Inter won a lot of titles then as well. But I mean, it was it. I mean, I, I when people talk about football through the ages, I, I think you have to divide it up into at least three or four 
eras because it's a different sport. You can't compare the 1930s to the 1960s or to the 1970s or the 80s and the 90s and onwards. It's it's different sports. Everything is different from preparation to the equipment to, to the pitches to, to everything. Mm. So so I'd say I mean the, the 60s were the were the, were truly the golden age, the grande inter era when when Inter uh, under uh, under Helenio Herrera, uh, Il Mago, the, the the magician, they called him the coach, uh, played a form of football uh, inspired by uh, you know, that was built on a solid defense, and uh, and 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 indiv- and and, re- and and depended on the individual brilliance of of, of fantastic attacking players, um, and they won. You know, they they beat uh, they won the European Cup uh, two years in a row, and they won the Scudetto. Uh, I mean, they won everything uh, during that period. And this is uh, that system you refer to is, of course, the the, the famous Cantonaccio. Cantonaccio, yeah, yeah, which is almost the the, the st- well, not almost. It is the stereotype of of Italian football. This solid defense, based with you know, mixed with individual brilliance. Yeah, it is. And at Inter, this has always been very true. Uh, I mean, all clubs, all all the big clubs in Italy have fantastic defensive history. And and uh, I mean, with with at Juventus, uh, Milan, Inter, all of them have fantastic defenders. But at Inter, this is really something. Milan under Berlusconi and and Arrigo Sacchi kind of underwent a little bit of a change because they decided, you know, Sacchi wanted to change all that uh, and play much more attacking football. And, and they did. And they mopped the floor with every club in the world, pretty much, uh, during those Sacchi years where they played some of the best for attacking football ever but at the back you had Tassotti, Costa Curta, Maldini and Baresi uh, you, you don't get past them easily uh, so, uh, so so I mean yes yes the defensive the, the defensive solidity has always been um, been, a, been, been a hallmark of Italian football but really so at Inter because if you look at Inter's history every time Inter have been successful it's been based on sol- defensive solidity it's been based on teamwork um, it's been based on putting the team ahead of yourself, uh, from um, Helenio Herrera to Trapattoni to Jose Mourinho. Uh, th- th- this has always been they've been true. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Mourinho, of course, behind the the man behind the famous treble. Does that mm. does that make it into the top three moments in the club's history? Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I think I'd, I'd think I'd be it, it, you'd be hard pressed to find even the most hardcore oh, Interista of olden years to suggest that anything beats that because um, you know being the first Italian team ever to win a, to win a continental treble the way Inter did and the manner in which they did they didn't they won it in the most Inter way ever uh, you know it's one thing to win win titles but to do it in in a way that is so typical of the identity of your club at, at Inter, uh, which is at Inter against everything and everyone contro tutti e tutto you know against that is that is that is a big part of inter's history um this notion you know that this notion that the establishment italian football establishment and the media are against them uh, and and you can find there are several reasons for that and the rivalry of juventus is entirely rooted in that I, and Mourinho specializes in that mentality too no oh. I mean, it was uh, he was it was for him it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, he for that. I mean, but you have to understand. But he did struggle that first year. I mean, that first summer in two thousand eight when he came to Inter, taking over a team that had won three scudetti, three conser- three consecutive Serie A titles. He 
he insisted on Quaresma, Amantino Mancini, and uh, Sully Montari, and ev- all three of them turned out to be flops, and losing against Manchester United in the in the Champions League in the knockout stages, and uh, you know then at that point. But that's the thing with Mourinho is that he's 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 so good at communication and 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 analysis and analysis. He he immediately after the game went to Moratti and Branca and said, look. In order for us to win in Europe, we need to play a four-two-three-one. We need these these types of players: the Milito, the Motta. The he wants centimeters in the in the central defense. They got Lucio, uh, he uh, Ibrahimovic. You know they could have played continued playing with a four-three-one-two or 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 a four-four-two, but or four-three-one-two as it was with Ibrahimovic. But when Ibrahimovic decided that he wanted to leave to go to Barcelona, and the opportunity was to bring bring in Samuel Eto'o, it gave Mourinho options. Options he could play a fourth, you know, four-three-one-two. He could play a four-three-three. He could play a four-two-three-one. Uh, and then Goran Pandev just added to that. So so basically, they bought five-six starting players to to bring into a, to a, to a core of players that were already there and were working. Uh, with Mike on uh, Javier Zanetti, Cambiasso, uh, and, and you know, and, and Kivut on the, on the left back to the, and, and Julio Cesar, of course, in goal. So they just basically brought, so they brought in Wesley Snyder, Diego, Diego Milito, Thiago Motta, Lucio, and Samuel Eto'o, and they all went into the starting lineup and made the team better. Um, and and Inter were flying. You know, they were. It was going. You knew it was going to be a special season with the way. In which they completely asphalted, as the Italians say, Milan in the first derby four nil. That game could have ended nine nil. It was unbelievable to watch. Definitely one of the hardest working teams I've ever seen in my life. What was also oh, yeah. what was also amazing about that team was that he got the stars to work hard. Yeah, that was Throughout that the was entire peak team. Mourinho. That was peak Mourinho. Um, that was peak when he was at his. At his his powers were at their peak, when he had this ability to communicate with players to get them to, to to put them you know even if you know I've seen Patrick Vieira speak of this saying that even when I wasn't when I was at Inter and I wasn't playing as much he made me feel part of it that was his strength he got everyone to feel part of the project and and this is the thing at uh, at Inter that he got everyone at the club to do it from the groundskeeper all the way up to the president everyone was united and fighting for the same cause and all of that was th- that was entirely thanks to Mourinho uh, so we'll we'll put that then in the top three moments uh, what else would you like to throw in there um, I would go. I mean, you have to go in with uh, the, the the European Cup wins in the sixties, winning two years in a row, beating that Real Madrid team and that Benfica team. Um, that, that's that's um, that, that's really special. Um, then I'd also have to add the um, the Trapattoni era, winning the you know the the way they won the Scudetto, the Inter dei record, uh, the record breaking fashion with which they won the Scudetto. In '89, but also the UEFA Cup for the first time in 1991, um, and then in, again in '94 and '98. Uh, but but at that '91, you know that that Trapattoni era of between '88 and '91, '92. There, it was it was truly special. The '93 '94 final was that the that the Ronaldo years? 
No, that was 98, 97, 98. Oh, I'm a little bit Yeah, the 93, 94 is very, very weird because that, that's the season that Dennis Bergkamp, you know, he, he was at Inter, but Inter failed miserably. They almost got relegated in the Serie A, but they won the UEFA Cup as a consolation prize. <laughs> and they had Ruben Sosa playing that season too, Indeed, indeed. Wow. They had Ruben Sosa. They had, um, they had uh, Wim Jonk. They had, um, yeah, Bergkamp, of course, who's one of the most... It's it's so it's a shame because he was so misunderstood because uh, he was a fantastic player but he and and he he struggled at Inter he really did um, and but you know they so what what Moratti did when he bought the club was to sell him immediately and uh, so he went you know he he went you know he went to Arsenal Arsenal and became a legend club legend there um, so that's the that's the top three moments. If you're to look at the worst moments in the club's history, where where do you go? Um, I'd say these past ten years have been absolutely <laughs> horrific, uh, and in a historical context wow. as well. Because after Moratti, after the treble and the subsequent season, you know, Mourinho leaving, and then uh, then Benitez coming in and ruining everything, and then you have uh, Leonardo coming in and trying, you know, bringing the ship into harbor, winning. Uh, Winning, winning the Coppa Italia, and then you have the serious implementation and the serious effects of the finan- of financial fair play, which decimated Inter's chances to compete. You had a, it was the perfect storm. You had that, and then you had a president who was tired, who had been there since '95, was exhausted, had won everything he'd won, com- you know, d- done what his father had done in the '60s, having won the Champions League and league titles, written written his name in history, becoming the second most successful Italian football president of all time in terms of titles won. Um, he was tired. He was. He wanted to leave. He he tried to 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 adapt to the to modern football by bringing in Chinese investors. That fell apart entirely, uh, completely uh, by the seams. Then then you know he sold the club to Eric Tohir, who basically was just a you know he was a bus stop on the way to Suning. I mean the only reason Eric Tohir bought the club was because he could buy it so cheap. Um, and he could sell it off at a huge profit, which he did. I mean, for what he he bought Inter for a price that I mean, when he sold seventy percent of his stakes at Inter, he made a profit on what he had paid for to buy Inter as a whole. The remaining thirty percent he sold off was pure profit. So, and and that's the thing about Italy. We you know on the Serie A show, we we sorry on the Italian football podcast, we interviewed Joe Tacopina, who owns uh, who owned Venezia and now is in talks to buy Catania. And he said that Italian real estate, and he was involved in the takeover talks at Roma. Uh, he he said that you know the the, the the Italy is 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 it's it's a good deal. It's a good very good deal to do business in Italy because it's very cheap. Uh, I mean, he spoke that the the price at which they bought Roma was so low. That he couldn't, they couldn't believe it. That it was almost stupid not to buy it. I just, I guess, a, a, a sign of how much turmoil the club has been in uh, since those post Jose Mourinho years. I think it's twelve or thirteen managers since Benitez in the, in oh. the ten years since Benitez. At least, I mean, uh, we, I mean, for one season they had three or four. Uh, they started with Gasperini, then they. Then they had Ranieri, and then they had uh, Stramaccioni. I know it was it was horrible. Um, 
I mean, if you count the assist, you know, the, the caretaker manager for as well, that's four. No, it was, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Um, um, but the thing is, it was, it was, everything was wrong because Inter were, were ill, ill equipped and ill prepared to, to, for modern football. The Premier League, they, they, they were, they started in the 90s and built up to it. Uh, all of a sudden it's 2012 and Inter have a financial, have a very antiquated financial system, the old Italian way of the club, you know, the, the president paying for all the, all, all all the losses that the club makes and invests just cash injection uh, the club um, that's not sustainable in the modern age uh, the club doesn't own its own stadium the stadium is antiquated you know marketing PR all, you know all that stuff was so antiquated uh, as it is in Italian football except for Juventus uh, they, they were the first to kind of realize it was the 21st century and and, and, and moved on but um, the rest of them are still playing catch-up. Uh, still to this day, although Inter have come a long way with Suning in terms of marketing and branding and and having you know uh, the corporate side of things, but they still don't own their own stadium. The San Siro is is very very old. Uh, it's not very friendly, user friendly. It's 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 difficult for them to capitalize uh, on. I think they're on par with what Everton makes per game. It's slightly less than that. Uh, and Everton have half of their capacity. I mean, San Siro has 85,000 people. It can take 81, 82,000 people. Goodson Park can take, what, 38, 39. So, you know, so it's, it's all about the, you know, it's, the, the modern game is all about revenue and the, whoever has the most revenue can buy the best players and, and can pay the highest wages. And, and you know, that, that kind of goes hand in hand. I think anybody who's been to a game in Serie A uh, can can testify to the contrast between going to the Juventus Stadium and then go to any other stadium in, no, in the entire country. It's it's incredible. No, it, it really is. I mean, now Atalanta and Udinese. Udinese have their own modern stadium they own. Atalanta as well. Uh, and, and I think, you know, and they're the smaller clubs. Uh, but, but for Roma, Milan, Inter, it's, it, it's hell because of the bureaucracy surrounding Italian... Uh, land law. I mean, just look at what Rocco Comiso, the hell he's going through at Fiorentina, trying to just construct a training ground outside of Florence. You know, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, he uh, he says, I mean, I'm I'm a foreign investor. I want to invest my money in your country. Why won't you let me? <laughs> yeah, it is it is incredible what they have to go through. Uh, there's been some huge inter transfers over the years. You think of Christian Vieri, you think of Ronaldo. Uh, do they get down as the sort of iconic players of the club, the ones who really represent what the club is all about, or is is it just Javier Zanetti? No, no, they don't. Especially Ronaldo. I mean, the way he backstabbed Inter in 2002. I mean, you have to remember he came to Inter in 97-98. He had a great first season. Then he was injured for the entire time, and Inter took care of him. Uh, Massimo Moratti. There's stories of Massimo Moratti going to the club's training ground and training with him, like rehab training with him, and providing crosses for him to to finish. And like just the two of them, the club's president and and the Brazilian Ronaldo standing there f- doing finishing together you know what I mean like That's... Mamorati crossing into him and him shooting on the volley it's literally my dream <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that I mean that happened everyone knows um uh, so so you know but, but uh, so he was he took a lot you know he took care of him but as soon as he was back to health he went to the world cup won it for Brazil and then when he was at his prime he just turned around and, and, and screwed Inter and said I want to go screw you guys uh, basically and and went to Real Madrid and then Inter had to spend the next decade chasing Real Madrid in every court known to man to get paid for him so um, and Moratti you know this is typical Moratti he was always known as a gentleman and a little bit too kind not a, not a good businessman uh, 
he, he was too much of a fan for g- both good and bad I mean he, uh, Vieri Vieri scored a lot of goals at Inter but also the way that ended was not good so I think I think if you're going to find someone through the years that represent Inter it, it has to be the Facchettis it has to be the Walter Zengas the, the Javier Zanettis um Giuseppe Bergomi, you know these these are the players that represent the values of Inter and the core values of the club. Esteban Cambiaso, etc. Yeah, it's all and it's all hardworking players. Yeah, uh, it's 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 it, yeah, it is it is hardworking players, but it's also a um, you know Armando Armando Picchi, the the captain of La Grande Inter in the sixties. I think is 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 such an Inter guy in the sense that it's an Inter. You it's hardworking players, but you know you can be good, but but on but modesty and humility is, is very important. You can't be show offs. I mean, it's it's the exact different. It's it's the polar opposite to the flamboyant style of Milan under Berlusconi. Uh, you know where where it's very superstar Hollywood at Inter. It's not like that. It's very. I remember you know if you, if you went into the dressing rooms of the at the San Siro during those eras. Now it's changed obviously, but it was very. It was it was the Inter dressing room was just a bench. You know benches, just everyone on the same level and some place to hang your clothes. The Milan one, it was a leather chairs for each player. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a bit different. <laughs> That is that is a little bit different, though. Right? But perhaps that fits a bit a bit better with Berlusconi's pers- personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that that is his personality, and that you know he he was all about that. And what what Berlusconi did brilliantly at Milan was was again this this kind of his his com- he instilled in the club a a brilliant communication and media strategy, which they are still they are still benefiting from, and Inter not so much. Um. So where does the club stand today? What are the the hopes, plans, aims for the season? Well, I mean, Sooning have um, Sooning are. I mean, it's a Fortune 500 company. It's one of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, they are they're they're huge, and and they 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 have done so much good. They're the best thing to happen to Inter. I think we can really speak of of Sooning's Sooning coming into Inter as one of the most brilliant things to have ever happen to the club, because they. They they've brought in the modern age. They've ushered in the modern age, and they know how to 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 run to run a modern business. Um, and and they they've invested. They've created a a sustainable financial system. Uh, the, the the missing piece of that is obviously the the new stadium, which is being worked on together with Milan, who's who are owned by the Elliott Fund, who also understand the importance. Of, of of a new stadium, so um, so the, the so so this season, I mean, it, we, you know, before Corona, it would have been something else, but now after Corona, where the financial effects of COVID nineteen, you know, Inter have brought in some good players, uh, but they haven't been able to invest the way they want. They've net spent about twenty million. I mean, remember Mauro Icardi was sold for fifty million. Uh, Lukak, uh, Hakimi bought for forty. Uh, Stefano Sensi was on loan, so they had to redeem him for twenty. And there was another 10, 15 million in payments needed to be made to Cagliari for Nicolo Barella, players they bought the previous season. And they, they, you know, the Chinese don't mess around with their with their finances. They say, you know, you have to make plus and minus add up. Uh, COVID is a reality. We, it's only one out, one in. I mean, Inter are struggling to sign Arturo Vidal now on a free transfer because the. Diego Godin's transfer to Cagliari has not been finalized. That's the level we're at, and and Suning are you know are very hard on that. 
much to the much to the annoyance of the fans, uh, because obviously th- this is a season where Inter was supposed to take that final leap, and I and I don't think they, I don't see how in 2020 Matteo Darmian, Alexander Kolarov, and Arturo Vidal close a gap to anything, let alone Juventus. So, second. Well, I mean, second to fourth. I mean, last season Inter finished second and overperformed. Um, I, I don't think... I think given how Napoli have strengthened, given how Milan, Roma and Atalanta look, I think it's going to be a hornet's nest for those place, Champions League places. I don't think... I think Inter will qualify, but I don't see them finishing second. I think Juventus will win without a shadow of a doubt. Um, they will, they will win. Even you know, a lot has been silly things have been made of this long, this thing about uh, Andrea Pirlo not being a coach. Andrea Pirlo was already a coach when he played football. He was the coach on the pitch, and and whether or not, you know, so I don't, I don't really s- subscribe to this notion that you know he doesn't have his coaching badges. We're not talking about some Tom, Dick, and Harry off the street. It's Andrea Pirlo for crying out loud. So, so I'm not worried about that. And also, he has he has the Juventus machine machinery behind him to protect him and help him and his staff to to whatever whatever he needs, so he can do his job. So I'm not worried about that. And also, uh, so so they look really strong. Inter, on the other hand, I think will fight second, third, fourth. I mean, I'm not I'm not entirely convinced. I mean, the the the, the transfer window's got two three weeks left in it, so we'll have to wait and see when we're recording this. But. I, I think two to f- somewhere between two to four. Okay, that's all from us today. My thanks to Helgo and Manu. Uh, we'll be back next week, but should you miss us in the meantime, you can listen to the back catalog on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcast hit. And if you want to get in touch, you address to do so, it's podcast.com. And be sure to check out our Premier League podcast on Monday. <laughs>